Your patience is beyond what we can know. Open our hearts to you and your words here and now, I pray. For your purposes' sake and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I do also want to mention uh, Zeke Latarte was another one of our body here who is uh, in desperate need of the Lord's touch upon his body. And this Wednesday, I will have my another referral. I didn't say another. My another referral. I will have another referral down in Rockland this Wednesday at 1030. If you remember it, if you think about it, it would be nice for the Lord to give this new doctor some insight as to what's going on with me. In the meantime, we continue to live and move and have our being in the Lord God Almighty. We are in Philippians chapter 1. We are in verse 8. We've been looking at Paul's, what I call, a fluffy introduction, and I don't mean that in a derogatory or demeaning sense, but fluffy in the sense of just it's, it's really out of character for the gruff Apostle Paul. But he's really been bearing his heart about his special relationship to this church at Philippi. But he also wants to make sure that they understand and that we understand that such flattery as it could easily be taken by unscrupulous preachers who needed support to do what they do was prevalent even in Paul's day. And so taking some liberties to read between the lines of some other things that Paul has written to the other churches about disingenuous preachers of his day, he underscores the sincerity of his mushiness toward the believers at Philippi in verse 8, saying, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it would be easy for us to just kind of blow the power of Paul's statement there. God is my witness. Because today, people from all walks of faith and non-faith throw this around. Or something like it. Well, God is my witness. Or more commonly today, swear to God. As if to put some kind of intensity behind it. Like, no kidding, this time you're serious. And we use that as nothing more as a slogan. But Paul took this as a literal oath before the God of heaven. God is my witness. What I am telling you is from the depths of my intestines. If you're going, what? You missed it a few weeks back. Actually, last week. Paraphrasing the apostles' thoughts. He says, I'm not just stroking you to keep you in my pocket, so to speak, or to coerce another love offering out of you. He is genuinely sincere in his accolades of the believers at Philippi for doing a great job in it, being a great supporter of their missionary, even though Paul, of course, is much more than a missionary. And actually, if we ended things right here, it would be a pretty good place to end the letter. It would be kind of a natural thing. This is There's been all kinds of good stuff in here thus far. But this is only the beginning. Because the point of his writing isn't first and foremost about the church showing their appreciation for him. But it's about the impact that Jesus has made in their lives 
in very real, very observable, tangible public ways in their demonstration and showing their gratitude for the Savior. Verse 9 then actually begins the essential meat of Paul's letter to this church. He says, you guys are awesome and you're doing well, so let's be sure to keep it up. And in fact, he says, this is what I'm praying, that your love may abound still more and more. It's like, dang, Paul, you were coming at us and stroking us and making us feel good and everything else. You know, now we're kind of thinking we could kick back at least for a while. You get the idea that Paul's never quite satisfied. For the bond servant of Jesus, though, remember the opening verse to this letter weeks ago, which Paul identifies himself as. For this bond servant and for the bond servant that Paul is, there's no time to start kicking back, backing away from the purposes for which Not only Paul, but everyone who follows the name and after the name of Jesus is created by God for him. And switching to a lifestyle pattern of recreation where hobbies maybe predominate or frittering away the days which remain in self-indulgent uselessness is foreign to the bondservant of Christ. And with that, I say, men and women who have been in the faith with consistency for some years, Who are you mentoring? Who are you mentoring? It's always time to demonstrate your love of the Lord in practical ways. And more and more, not less and less as we get older. As Paul prays for them to be abounding in love. It isn't a syrupy social kind of love that is defined by the world and by the flesh and by the devil. And this is why Paul is careful to qualify his statement about his prayer for them that they abound in love. He writes, abound in love more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. What does that mean? It means that the church, capital C, meaning us, the church throughout history, which means Christians, need to be biblically wise in the exercising the love of God in the ways that God defines love, not as the world, the flesh, and the devil defines it. Think for a moment about some of the common ways that the church attempts to show the love of God today. I'm going to help you out here. Food pantries. Food pantries are big today in the churches. Gas cards. Oil subsidies for people who are in dire straits in the winter months. Winter coat giveaways. Neighborhood trash pickups. Raking leaves. Stacking wood. Household repairs. Sponsoring pregnancy centers. Sponsoring homeless shelters. Sending work crews to the shelters. These are all things that this church has done as an expression of God's love. And there is nothing wrong with any of these things in and of themselves. But these kinds of demonstrations are only minor applications of what Paul is praying for the Philippians, if at all. 
which is why he qualifies how he prays for them, saying he prays that their love abounds in real knowledge and all discernment. And in saying that, what he's saying is that true love, as God defines a godly love, must be both intelligent, meaning informed by God's Word, and discerning. Meaning what? Meaning not everything that churches, meaning Christians, not everything that Christians do today is necessarily loving just because it happens to fit some emotional, traditional, or stereotypical view of what most people, unbelievers and believers alike, think churches are supposed to be doing. Steel toe alert. Steel toe shoe alert, I should say. Hopefully nobody in here has steel toes. One of today's most prevalent views of the mission of the church. Hear it well. See it well. Is to be an extension of a social welfare agency. Oh, here he goes. (laughs) Which is why when people show up here or they call here, Asking or better, demanding that we help them with their rent, with their electricity, with their bus trip, with their pharmacy needs, with their kids' school supplies, with their clothing, and on and on. It is not uncommon for some to become quite belligerent when we tell them no. They're amazed. They're shocked. And we have had the common response of, But you're a church! (laughs) Exactly! And for more and more churches today, and not just the mainline denominations, which it used to be 30 years ago or so, this is what Big C Church has become, or the expectation of what it should be, far and away. And I'm talking about every church of every denomination. And frighteningly, the measure of successful church today is how many, how many sinful choices your church endorses and affirms and embraces and how many social relief programs you have going. Oh, but the pesky Word of God, the capital T, big T truth, when allowed to enter into the culture and give clarity and definition, messes everything up. I love the scenario recorded for us in the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative Word of God in the book called The Acts of the Apostles. The context that I'm talking about is from Acts chapter 3. And as we come on the scene, Peter is there, and Peter's got his posse with him, and there is a beggar sitting outside of the temple. We can make it the church. There's a beggar sitting outside the church, 
And the beggar is there and he sees Peter and his posse coming and the beggar asks them for money. The beggar's perceived need, the need of the beggar's life as far as he is concerned, is money. I need money. Money will take care of what my needs are. This is in the Bible, just to remind you. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. So Peter takes him by the hand, which means he's still on the ground, because he was lame, he couldn't walk. And he says, Get up and walk. And that beggar, I'm thinking, was kind of probably surprised. And I don't know if Peter was going, boy, I sure hope this works or not. Or I could be really embarrassed. You know? Get up and walk. Flop. Okay, let's slow down here. But he didn't. He raised him up. He stood up. And now something interesting happened. Peter and the posse go into the temple. And the man now, receiving what he needed and wanted, he takes off the other way, going, No, that's not what happened at all. Although that happens on other occasions with Jesus. But that's not what is recorded in Acts 3. The beggar, standing in awe and wonder, follows them into church into the temple. Let's look at the result. Picking up in Acts chapter 3, verse 10. And they, meaning all the people who were standing around and saw this whole thing take place, were taking note of him, that is the man who was lame, as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, that means to beg for money, And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, (laughs) he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of atenizo. That is like full of just being blown away-ness. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, I'm going to be in town all week with my tent, and we are going to have a healing revival. So make sure you bring your offerings. as a demonstration of your faith, of course, to get your healing. Now he says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or our own piety or faith, we made him walk? Oh, no, no, no. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And if you know the passage from that point on, ooh, Paul gets nasty. And he follows with saying, you know, Jesus, the one that you crucified. Ooh. <laughs> fluffy, fluffy Paul. 
if Peter and the gang, now let's just take a step back, you know, in time and kind of look at this all over again. If Peter and his posse had done what we tend to do today, they would have awkwardly gone through their pockets out of OCN. I told you what OCN was last week. Obligatory Christian niceness. Okay? Only this time there's a big dose of OCG added in. Obligatory Christian guilt! And they'd be going through their pockets. Um, you know, there may have been a pocket full of change there. But they're like, gee, I, I, boy, I'm not quite, oh, maybe I can come up with something. You say, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you know, I mean, I know you're paraphrasing here and you're kind of making this come alive. But Peter said, I have neither silver nor gold. Well, that wasn't the only form of currency in the day. Duh. So, and it's kind of unlikely that Peter, a working man, and the posse were themselves destitute. Which means, I'm assuming, and I am assuming, I could be wrong, that they had money. They could have gone up to the beggar, and again, out of the OCN and OCG, just kind of put the thing in and gone in and, whew, okay. And having done so, they would walk into church or the temple feeling like they had done some awesome act of evangelism. Showing the love of Jesus in a practical way. And the beggar's life, if that had been the scenario, what would have continued on as exactly as it had always been? And the next day he would be at the temple, sitting there begging, convinced that his need of the world was money. When his need was the declaration and a proclamation that the living God is the God of power and might, and He can change you from the inside out in more ways than you can imagine. Now get up and walk! Hmm. How far the church has fallen from Jesus' commands about being light in the darkness, and has totally abandoned the idea of setting that light on a mountaintop so that it can be seen. And to many, that is not even an admirable trait of the church anymore. Because we all know that religion is a private thing. It is even increasingly distasteful among the attenders of the church having bought the devil's notion of love as he defines it. And the, decla- the declaratory function of the body of Christ in so many ways is essentially gone. One illustration from real life. When I find out that someone else has left faith because I am too political, what they are saying 
is that I am applying the big T truth of God's Word to our everyday affairs, and that is offensive to them, usually because it tends to step on their toes. So once again, let's get some clarity and go to the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative Word of God as recorded for us in John chapter 16. In verse 8, beginning, Jesus says, And when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the people who bolt, because I delineate God's heart and God's mind on the morals of our culture, which have been imposed upon us by the mechanisms of political processes, make one of two choices. One of two choices. To fall on their knees and repent, accepting Jesus as Lord, not just Savior, not just a fire insurance policy, but as Savior and Lord, meaning you call the shots. Or they run, trying to escape the condemning words of God's revealed truth to mankind. Because God's truth is convicting something in their lives to which they are clinging. This is the result of the truth of God's word having been so long appended, ignored, destroyed or rewritten as to be unrecognizable to many in the congregation of the believing, even when it comes straight from God's revelation to us. And Paul is keenly aware of the potential for each and any and every church to drift away from the living God while looking like an awesome serving, loving, giving church, emulating Jesus as his body on earth earth that they supposedly represent. Like the church, classic example, which is why it's there, I believe, in Revelation chapter 2, chapter 1, the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. They have so long abandoned Jesus for all the good things that they were doing. Remember, he starts out with nothing but commendation for the church at Ephesus. And they sound good, good things. He says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Jesus, Savior and Lord. And they neither recognized him nor were able to even hear his voice when he is right there in their midst speaking. Paul doesn't want any of that for the Philippians whom he loves, and he says, I want you to step up your game as a loving church, but I want you to do so with real knowledge and discernment. And the purpose of this all is verse 10. So that... 
you may approve the things that are excellent, which I'll define, in order to be sincere, which I'll define, and blameless until the day of Christ. The things that are excellent. Hmm. What are those? Well, Paul's going to mention this again when we get to chapter 4. But the things that are excellent, to which he is referring, are the things that transcend the ordinary. Now, at that point, you should go, Thank you. I appreciate that. Let me put that in other words. Things that are excellent are those things that are actually of ultimate importance as determined by God. Approving the things that are excellent means to be affirming, supporting, and get ready, imposing those views those moral pronouncements and those values that matter to God, where and when the church, which is Christians, are given opportunity. And this is all for the purpose of being found sincere, in other words, truthful and full of integrity. Integrity of what? Integrity of our profession as being actual followers of Christ. So that we will be found unoffensive until the day of Christ. But until that day comes, you see, if we are faithful in what that just declared, you may be offensive in the meantime to your mother or to your sister or to your uncle, or your friend, or your co-worker. You may be offensive even to your fellow parishioner. But that is not our goal in life. To be unoffensive. Our goal is that we will not be found offensive to the Lord God whom we profess to follow. in the context of Paul to the church. Our goal is that the church will be blameless with respect to falling prey to advocating a different gospel and a different God, which is exactly what is running rampant more and more today in the so-called Bible-believing churches of our day. Because a church can look great to the community around it. Any church and Christian can be admired for their social consciousness or their message of positivity. This is Brother Osteen's church. This is not a special gathering. This is the church. I don't know how many services they have. They might be lauded for their tolerant embrace of societal outcasts. But if they do not impose the unbridled truth of God's Word, their love is hatred. Yes, hatred of the worst kind. Why? Because 
it encourages a godless independence as they skip and dance and sing their way into the eternal fires of perdition. That means hell. Christless forever and ever. Hmm. Now, I hate it when you sound so judgmental, Pastor. I know. But if this does sound judgmental, and oh, I'm sure it does. Or if it sounds harsh, I have to remind us of two things Jesus said. Now, he said way more, but I'm just going to use two. And they're even red letters. So, you know, you got it. Yeah, they're inspired, all right. Yep. The first is found in Matthew 22. Now, the context is that this is a story. This is a parable to teach a lesson. And Jesus tells a story about a king who throws a wedding celebration. All right. Verse 11 says, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, The plaintive moaning of a cello enters at this point. Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. Well, why was the man extracted from the wedding celebration? Well, it's because he wasn't properly attired. Okay, but what does that mean? Is God concerned at this point? Is this the point of the parable that God's concerned about making sure that we all wear the proper attire to religious ceremonies? And in this case, the hallowed ceremony of the wedding? Is this about some superficial, legalistic dress code? Obviously not. And remember, the Bible interprets the Bible. The Old Testament is not behind an impenetrable wall between the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah is very helpful here. He writes, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. Why? Because He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Just like a bridegroom who decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The only proper attire for one to be invited to and remain at the marriage celebration or feast of the Lamb put on by the King of Kings is the righteousness of Jesus. What did Isaiah say? 
garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. In the Old Testament, salvation by faith through grace. Hmm. And those garments cannot be purchased. They cannot be earned. They cannot be manufactured. They can only be provided for you and given to you by God Almighty as a gift. And then you can choose to wear them or not. And now the point of the story comes at the end and Jesus says, in case you missed it, many are called. Called to what? Many are called, if you will, to keep the story kind of going here. Many are called to the marriage feast of the Lamb that he talked about in Revelation. The celebration of all the church universal throughout the ages. All the true believing followers of Jesus Christ at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Many are called, but few are chosen. Few are chosen. Only believers in the God of the Bible, because of the garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness, are invited to that celebration of the Lamb. Harsh, judgmental Jesus. He says something else. That would make many Hessian crids, Christian heads, or Hessian crids, I don't know. It would make both of those wobble if they ever heard it explained. The second thing Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name we even cast out demons. And in your name we performed many miracles. And then I, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Means abject sinfulness by choice, by will, by decision. Now, coincidentally, do you know what happens to be the first verse of Matthew chapter 7? Remember, this comes toward the end of chapter 7. The very first verse of chapter 7 is one of the most famous, famous, famous verses in all of the Scriptures. It's not John 3.16. It is judge not, lest ye be judged. I find that an interesting juxtapositioning of the totally misunderstood and the totally abused. Well, judge not, lest ye be judged. And the whole flow moves to Jesus rendering harsh judgment and harsh statements of eternal importance. In his judgment. Hmm. 
What was the problem with the people to whom Jesus says, I never knew you, verse 24? Here it is. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and says, I believe, they may be compared to a wise man. No, that's not what it says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts, little kids, and acts on them, lives by them, they may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock, whose name is Jesus. So going back to verse 10, Paul prays for the believers at Philippi to show their godlike love through their lives, doing so with wisdom and always being mindful of what is first and foremost important to God, which they are doing. Nevertheless, he prays that they will continue to do even more and more and more because they have been filled with verse 11, with the fruit of of righteousness, the fruit, the evidence of righteousness, the evidence of hearing God's words and acting on them, which comes through Jesus Christ. You see, our acting on them does not give us righteousness. The righteousness of Christ Himself, which is spotless and absolutely perfect, to which we can add nothing, is given to us. And as evidence of the fact that that truly has been received by us, the Holy Spirit comes into us now. And the evidence of all of that being true and real is, we will act on it. So all those people that were doing all these wonderful, mighty things in the end, and they say to Jesus, look what we've done, look what we've done, look what we've done. He says, yes, but your acts have been acts of lawlessness, of sin. Depart from me. Yours was religion of the worst kind. I never knew you. Be gone. Pah! Okay. To the church of Galatia, the Apostle Paul would write, the fruit of the Spirit is love, as qualified in Scripture, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're lacking in one or more or all, and I mean just really, truly, totally lacking in them, all of them, as a matter of course, you better start inspecting your fruit. You may find little ugly worms and pestilence in that fruit. And Jesus doesn't want anybody to be taken by surprise on that day. Can you imagine truly the horror of thinking your whole life that you're not just a religious person, man. You have been, oh yes, I go out and prophesy in the name of the Lord. 
prayed for healing. And you know what? I've even seen results in healing praying for them. Cast out demons. Here I am, Jesus. Yo, man. He says, hi. What's your name? What do you mean, what's my name? You're supposed to know everything, right? Yeah, yeah, but I don't recall your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Oh, there's got to be some mistake. Yeah, the mistakes were made throughout your entire life as the big T truth was presented to you. And you kept shoving it, pushing it aside, redefining it, making yourself feel good, and doing what you have always wanted to do. And in the core of your being, if you were honest with yourself, you would know that my spirit has been trying to get your attention throughout your entire life to wake you up to see that it's not those who hear my words, but who live them, who do them. Depart from me, you doer of iniquity. I never knew you. So you see, and, and that's talking about that's talking about religious people. So don't think that Christians don't need to be evangelized. I mean, Christians. And you see, that is why I get, you know, you say, boy, you were just so unfair to Joel Osteen. And, you know, he's doing all these wonderful things and he's so positive and makes me feel good and all that good stuff. How many people, it's not just Joel. The prosperity gospel is global today. Global. And crazy popular because it feeds the person's ego and emotion. It's like, ooh, it feels so good. That's the God I always envisioned. I knew that was who God was. Good. And now this official person who's got these following of thousands and thousands of people, he can't be wrong. And they will be the kind that will stand before Jesus Christ and he will go, who are you? And they're going to be going, what do you mean? Our work is far from even hardly being started. Let me have you stand. Ben? Let's pray. God, you are sovereign. You are holy. Your name is holy. We glorify you here today. We offer to you our confessions our problems, our issues, our trouble. And we thank you because we know you're the type of God who cares, who listens to us, who has that personal connection with us. We thank you for sending your son to take our place on the cross. Grant us the things we need, Lord, not the things we want. You know what we need before we even ask for them. Grant us those things that will enable us to further your kingdom and to glorify you. Be with us throughout the week as we leave today and go back out into the world. Shower everyone in this auditorium with your grace. We pray these things in the name of your perfect son, Jesus, who reigns with you. Amen.